listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome to another exciting people powered planet podcast where each week we talk to solutionaries. The world is deluged with so many programs telling us all the problems of the world. And if you thought that one was, was bad, it's even worse than that. And it's worse than that. But what we focus on is solutionaries, uh, people who uh, understand the depths of the problems, but are moving forward with exciting solutions that can help us help us thrive and live well on planet Earth. So. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our really special guest we have this morning, and that is Rebecca Shute, who heads the Citizens for Global Solutions. Now, Rebecca, uh, she's an international lawyer with over 15 years of experience with non-governmental and intergovernmental and private sector groups that are working for human rights and democratic processes and the and the rule of law. Uh, she's a uh, she's a, really one of the top human rights attorneys, and she created the Global Parliamentary Campaign for Democratic Renewal and Human Rights. And besides that, she also acts and directs and writes for the theater. And if those of you who've seen our Gary Davis movie know that's something that he would uh, would be excited to talk to her about as well. Now, she also uh, directed the programming for this bipartisan group. Uh, uh, to, uh, that's people on both sides of the aisle in the House of Representatives working on a democracy partnership. Um, and she's had numerous par publications, uh, the Global Parliamentary Report and others, including one that won the Emory Law Review Founders Award for Excellence. And she's also worked, provided her pro bono expertise for the M International Criminal Court, the Carter Center, the International Refugee Project, uh, the United Nations. I think we'll hear a little later about a, uh, something she's going off to at the UN. and. Uh, she even worked on an international humanitarian law curriculum for the U.S. Marine Corps University. Um, and then she co-convenes the Washington Working Group on the International Criminal Court. So as you can see, we have a very exciting guest today. Uh, welcome. Welcome so much, Rebecca. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, the, uh, I have to say that the intro is a little bit more fulsome and hyperbolic. Uh, I don't know what it takes to be a top human rights attorney. I am a, a human rights attorney. Um, and I have to say at the outset, as we discussed Gary Davis's legacy and the ways in which CGS follows in that footprint, that there is one way in which I certainly fall down in following his example. I have to admit that I'm a terrible dancer. <laughs> well, at least you act on stage. <laughs> well, Gary, as you saw in the movie, he's still was still tap dancing right up there till the end. Well, so uh, I'm actually going to start with the the big big question. Uh, we see our world deluged with uh, with uh, the threat of nuclear war looming higher than ever. We see uh, so many scientists and everyone telling us we're headed toward global doom uh, with. Uh, the destruction of our environment, the very fragile environment that keeps life alive on planet Earth. Um, what What is the global solution? What is the global solution to the multiple problems deluging humanity at this point? Well, I think we need to unpack that question that there is no single solution, and that's why we're not a monolithic entity. We're not a single issue uh, platform. 
Um, I think I don't need to explain Citizens for Global Solutions for many in this audience who probably could explain it better than I, and I should probably preface this all with I've been executive director for about four months now, um, but I will um, uh, for, the, for the sake of the record. Uh, we were founded in 1947 as the World Federalist Association, the coming together of disparate ideas, divergent thinkers, um, a diffuse way of looking at the world and thinking that the solutions would be perhaps multiple, but that they needed to be common. And so that's the platform that we seek to provide today. At Citizens for Global Solutions, we have a few areas of advocacy and concentration, many of which are intertwined uh, that I can uh, extrapolate upon. We also have programming that we do. And more, I think importantly, we seek to build a constituency. Um, we are a United States-based organization um, mobilizing hearts and minds to the idea that there is something bigger than a nation state that there is commonality among peoples and citizens and individuals across the world. So we can talk about some of those di uh, different options and I can frame them in a few different ways. Um, but I think that's where I would start the conversation that this is a big tent with a lot of different ideas, all of which are trying to solve the intractable and transigent and uh, uh, borderless issues of our day. Well, borderless. So isn't that the really the primary key? And that is that as long as we look at our world as the nation being the sovereign, our nation above all the others and so on, that uh, there really is no global solution stuck inside that nation state system. That in order to find global solutions, isn't the commonality of all the global solutions you're working on, that they all are seeking some way that we can bring the rule of law to rise above the nation states that divide us? Well, I think there are lessons to be learned from the ways in which nation states have evolved and their interaction. Um, sometimes I think it's, it's tempting to think that institutions like the United Nations are immutable and that they're preserved in amber and that they've always been this way. We don't recollect that actually this is a fairly new institution um, in the history of humanity, that the International Criminal Court, that the International Court of Justice, which actually predates the United Nations, but um, is uh, these are all fairly recent inventions and they all have lessons to offer in ways in which nation states can, and um, I would argue, I think CGS would argue, should evolve uh, towards not just uh, international cooperation, but global cooperation. So not just cooperation on a multilateral or bilateral basis between states, but something that more approximates a global system of governance. And that yes, includes the rule of law, which I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was educated in the American system growing up. I have degrees from elsewhere, but uh, we, you know, we learned about three branches of government. Um, and so we gestured a little bit to the judiciary. I, I'll come back to that if I if I have time. Um, uh, we also we we basically just see an executive in the form of the United Nations at the moment that um, supports the the governing structures of its uh, component states. We don't have a legislative body. That's something also that CGS and our partners um, advocate for. 
So I think when we talk about these solutions, you can group them maybe in terms of topically or thematically. You could also group them structurally. And I, I try to kind of have the uh, cross-section of those two as we approach these huge issues. So in, in, is, as long as uh, nations claim sovereignty above uh, above the global community, as long as, long as they say uh, that we can dismiss the rule of law uh, or, or any, any international agreements, that we, we preserve the right, uh, to violate them or whatever, because the nation is is preeminent. Uh, as long as we have that uh, that rule, is is there really any hope that we could ever solve these problems that threaten the life of humanity, or will it take some way of 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 uh, of, of giving some of the sovereignty that each of us possess uh, to the global level? Well, uh, first, in terms of the the hopelessness comment. Um, I'm contractually obligated, I believe, to be an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would be anyway, and I, I think that's in keeping with the spirit of uh, of Gary Davis and the spirit of um, this movement and the spirit of this podcast. Um, you know, I, I do see major um, steps forward um, all the time, and backward, and maybe um, to the side. <laughs> but there's movement. It's the important thing. Uh, in terms of whether nation states surrender to, to something greater, that's certainly a narrative that we hear um, from uh, exceptionalists, from isolationists in, in the United States, where I'm from, where Citizens for Global Solutions is headquartered. Uh, that there is some element of surrender to something greater. Um, I, I don't really see that as the the verb that I would use. Um, uh, you know, I see it as as belonging and furthering common goals. Um, and we, we've got to remember how much these institutions have done, both for nation states and for the individuals that comprise them. Now, you also asked, I think, at the the citizen level, um, what this would mean. So I come from a federalized system. I come from a system where, although I'm, I'm in DC, so taxation without representation, um, but where I'm used to belonging to nested identities, where I'm used to having um, a local, in, in my case, not a state, a district um, that I belong to, uh, a federal system that I belong to, and then beyond that, um, the, the regional, the international organizations that my government government belongs to. Um, many governments do not serve the citizens, their citizens well, um, and cutting out some of those middle layers can be helpful, but at the same time, the Federalist tool is a device that I think is very well understood. So there's no there's not necessarily a need to demolish the nation state or the Westphalian notion as such. Um, we have entertained ideas across the spectrum of everything that everything uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. We start fresh or um, incremental incrementalism towards a better world governance system. Um, I call it stepping stones and believe that we can have both options on the table at the same time and uh, entertain all of these narratives. Um, I think there yeah. needs to be a personal appeal. And this is what we do at Citizens for Global Solutions to individuals, 
to un help them understand how something that might seem very far away, that might seem very remote, that might seem very abstract, actually interrelates to their personal challenges in life. And we're seeing that more and more. Unfortunately, uh, we have a great deal of impetus right now to understand from pandemics, crimes of aggression, um, climate crises, uh, that nation states probably are not the best or only answer. Well, I'm very glad you turned it back to the citizens. I'm also very glad that you entertain a wide variety of, of players and approaches because uh, I think they all can fall under under the umbrella of how do we come together as a planet to uh, be able to provide global solutions. And uh, I think particularly, uh, I'm interested in finding out your your thoughts about, I mean, here, none of us actually have any right, to, you mentioned no 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 global uh, parliament. Uh, yes, there's, we don't get to elect or have any say at the global level whatsoever. There's no way that citizens can participate. And I'm wondering whether uh, among the options you entertain are one where people have talked about how uh, you know, ordinary people could also uh, be involved involved in a in a both a parliamentary system, but a way that they could also have more uh, input and in kind of perhaps a more uh, holistic way as we see the world evolving into uh, uh, people now being able to participate so much more in things that used to be top down, a little more of a, a bottom up approach where uh, where we the people begin to take our responsibility. That's mentioned in all the different constitutions and in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that we the people uh, create government, that uh, the uh, the basis, the, the will of the people shall be the basis of the of the uh, uh, of, of the existence of nation states. Uh, can we the people also be a part of not just waiting for top down change, but for we being a part of helping create the global institutions we need, and then integrating them in with perhaps the nation state uh, institutions. So before I um, came to this position, or um, maybe even this movement, I, I was a parliamentary um, uh, practitioner. And so this question kind of speaks to, to my heart, and I think to a little bit of my background. Um, it's not for nothing that in the United States Constitution, the uh, first article is about the legislative body, um, not about the executive, not about the judiciary. And when you think about the role of legislators, um, it could be capitulated in, in several different manners, but the first and foremost is representation. And that can be delegation of authority from bottom up. Um, so uh, the people elect you and then you use your judgment as you wish, or it can be representational, you uh, resemble the, the constituency that you represent, or it can be more of a dialectical fashion. The bottom line, though, is that there is a direct correlation, a direct narrative, a direct thread between people, individuals, and a system of governance. So this is what is envisioned at the global level. Um, and that can take multiple forms. As I said, there are many different forms of rep parliamentary representation that can be envisioned. Um, and and you know, we haven't even spoken about whether that's within the existing UN system or something new. Um, but the bottom line is that there has to be a channel there. There has to be 
that thread, that narrative, that connectivity uh, between individuals and between a, a, a governance, a global governance system, that also needs to be coupled with. Um, I'm not going to leave aside the fact that we do need to reform the quote unquote executive functions. Um, and I would love as a lawyer <laughs> to come back to the judicial functions of a global governance system. And um, I think that as long as citizens are participating at the first fundamental level, that legislative level, um, and uh, they're, uh, we're using all the tools at our disposal for uh, transparent and accountable communication, um, and accountability for all citizens for any harm done, which again comes back to the judicial branch, uh, that that would be a democratic world federation that I think anybody within our big tent with all the different ideas that are on the table could ascribe to. I'm very interested in hearing more about the dialectical uh, process and how that might be a part of this. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, Gary Davis talked about was evolving kind of a synergistic system where uh, kind of like what we're beginning to evolve with these Zoom meetings all, all, all over the world where you had people uh, interacting in a way with, with, with a set of uh, uh, with a set of fundamental uh, uh, way, ways that you move beyond like arguments about who's right and wrong, but where you bring people together from opposite sides of the issue and you find ways of finding a, a synergistic solution better than the solution that either started with ways of using some of the more advanced techniques of uh, uh, like revolutionary conversations. And there's tons of others where where people get past the who's right and wrong and work on a getting to yes kind of approach where uh, where we find out what are our common values? How do we relate? So how might some of these uh, uh, tools where people can actually to be interactively involved as we are now in these, these podcasts, how could some of those tools also be evolved to be a part of this uh, global parliament where it was not only representatives, but where there was also some direct dialectical citizen involvement process? Well, let me zoom down maybe from 10,000 feet um, <laughs> and, and forgive me for, for a little bit of a plug, but I'll, I'll give you some uh, practical concrete examples of what CGS is working on right now along these lines. Um, so one of the projects that we have coming up is a community conversation series. So this has been piloted in, I think, um, three jurisdictions so far. We're looking to bring this across the country. And it's bringing together citizens from an array of backgrounds uh, for the tough conversations. Um, so far, it's been piloted on issues around social justice, around civil rights issues, around fair, uh, primarily domestic matters. And what we hope to do now with a series with CGS coming on board is consider America's place in the world and the world's place in America. And what do these different individuals think? And can we have that, as you said, dialectic or this dialogue? And uh, we don't need to come to consensus, um, but can we formulate opinions? Can we formulate policies? Can we formulate um, uh, some ideas to send to our representatives, to send to the seats of power that make sense? And CGS sits at the nexus of being a people-powered movement and also having entree to the United Nations. Also having, I'm you know sitting down the street from 
the uh, from the hill, and I go there frequently. Um, our voices matter. And people lose sight of that, I think, sometimes and think that the only power that they have is at the ballot box. And that it's in, in my country's case, at least it's once every four years or well, more frequently in the case of congressional elections. But um, that's not the case. Legislators are there to represent us, whether it is at the national level or whether it is at the supranational level. And now connecting that to UN narrative, connecting that to a broader global narrative is I think what we seek to transcend. Um, but having worked for parliamentarians uh, for quite a while, they listen. And uh, yeah, the, the, the people in power are there because of the people on the streets, because of uh, the people in their homes. Um, it's, I think, a false narrative to, to have these kind of layers that uh, are uh, so seemingly, they can't blend, um, having been kind of up and down that, that course. I think that answered part of your question, but I think there's part of it that I missed. So may I, may I ask you again <laughs> what, what I'm I'm missing out there? Well, I you know I was very excited when the UN Secretary uh, General uh, uh, called for a global conversation on the on the uh, yeah. future we want, the UN we need. Sure. Uh, I mean, and that and and that was what was so fascinating to me about that is he was appealing directly to people to be involved in the conversation. And they started building some institutions in ways that uh, I know CGS was very involved in, that people could put direct input in. They could begin to you know, create a document that represented that. And I thought that was such a fantastic initiative. And then it, I don't know if it went somewhere after that, but I think that's exactly what we need is a, is a global conversation on the future we want, uh, the kind of global institutions we need to get us there. Uh, so uh, uh, I think I think that's what I'm kind of aiming at is how do we and I think that's what you already talked about a little bit how do we how do we begin that mammoth global interactive conversation that begins to take humanity to this higher level. Uh, so I'm um, a little bit chagrined to to be answering this question because there are a few people on the chat who are more intimately um, aware of this um, and have been involved longer. But CGS is integrally involved with both the Summit for the Future and the Sustainable Development Goals Midpoint Summit. These are both uh, pretty critical, uh, one would say, milestones for the UN within the next year. Um, the midpoint of the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, for those who, who aren't aware, the Sustainable Go Development Goals followed on the Millennium Development Goals and um, the role of civil society has varied over time um, in achieving these goals. Um, but the midpoint and then the culmination uh, will both provide an opportunity for civil society organizations like ours and our parent organization, the World Federalist Movement Institute for Global Policy, to provide valuable input. Um, there have been thousands of civil society in institutions that have contributed over time at the domestic level and at the UN level uh, to the SDG process and, of course, the, the MDG process that preceded it. Um, and we hope that this will be a place for seismic change. Again, contractually obligated to be an optimist. 
Um, there are several, <laughs> there are several um, specific and technical pathways that I could discuss that uh, civil society organizations have the opportunity to to intercede or uh, to to influence uh, SDG realization. At the same time, there's also the summit for the future. The summit for the future is coming up next year. And um, as a part of that, there has been a vast um, amalgamation of civil society and um, I, I would, I, not just civil society, legal organizations, a variety of different institutions that are not nation states coming together, also corporate entities, et cetera, coming together to think about out-of-the-box solutions. Um, one of the members of the chat, uh, Alan Ware, is chairing a town hall tomorrow for the Coalition for the UN We Need on exactly what will go on for this next summit that is, or sorry, this next um, iteration that is that is happening in September. And uh, thereafter, we look forward to not just in-person gatherings at the summits of power, but really engaging with um, people around the world. I think that I, I mean, I would have to guess that if there are a couple thousand civil society organizations involved, um, you can extrapolate that to the number of individuals that are involved. Does something get lost in the upward narrative? Does you know something uh, get lost when you have to edit everybody's um, voice into a 30 second or two minute speech at the UN? Maybe. Um, but this is a huge, huge step. And uh, this, I think, um, consultative process is unlike something that we've seen before. Wow. Well, I, I salute you for holding this complexity of, of different levels of, of involvement, both uh, direct citizen involvement and then uh, interactive governmental involvement and, and, and the tightrope between those. I mean, so often uh, uh, we, we see at the... Uh, uh, we see at the global level, uh, people who are working for, uh, for, 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 you know, a, 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 well, what's been called like the new, the new world order, but sometimes a top down. And I, I know in our movie, Gary Davis talks about, uh, he says, does world government scare you? Uh, well, it does to me if it's the same old forces of power and money controlling our lives from behind closed doors. But what if we, the people, you know, what if, what if we, 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 we take our responsibility and are involved in that and creating that and, and having something that is more interactive? And I guess one of the key questions is, uh, uh, is navigating that, that tightrope between uh, working with institutions that uh, want to basically do what empires have done for, for history. They've tried to bring peace by being the empire that conquers the world, and then they have either... Uh, you know, Pax Romana or Pax Britannia or Pax Americana or whatever empire is trying to control the world their way and saying, well, this is the path to peace. We'll, we'll control everybody. And of course, with new interactive tools of control, uh, we know there's a mammoth threat in that area. Uh, how do we navigate that, that uh, complex uh, line between uh, developing the solutions we need to keep the planet going and not veering over to the side of top-down uh, empire-controlled world that, of course, is, is not going to be stable. Empires rise and they fall because it, it hasn't quite worked to do it that way, to create peace by the empire from the top down. Uh, so what do you find in your involvement with 
global institutions and so on of uh, efforts that would build world peace by one you know, one uh, block dominating the world rather than a truly more interactive north, south, east, west uh, role in the, in the evolution of global in institutions. I know these are big questions, but... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you really asked the easy ones. Um, <laughs> empires rise and empires fall. Populist movements also rise and they fall. Um, and uh, for better or for worse, this is something, you know, that we see we have seen increasingly um, in, in recent decades. Um, and sometimes those populist movements contribute to empirical or quasi-empirical structures. Um, sometimes they tear them down. Sometimes they are for the betterment of humanity. Oftentimes they are not. Um, so, but I think there there is no, there should be no doubt at this point um, in time that uh, people, do have a voice. Um, it's how I think to channel this into a global governance structure that serves the goals of humanity and our planet itself, actually, not just humanity, uh, that that is the issue. Um, one area that I, that I see um, as constructive or instructive, perhaps, is looking at some of the innovative solutions for direct democracy or deliberative democracy or um, remote democracy uh, that have been out of necessity piloted in different constituencies and different jurisdictions. So um, when we look at an authoritarian government that has um, collapsed either of its own volition or uh, because there was outside influence, what happens next? This is was my first career in democratic development. Um, and who takes part in the decision-making about what the next structures look like uh, was the question I was confronted with and my colleagues are confronted with as we think about what democracy looks like in many, many varied forms. And I'll just use one instance uh, to try to, to give an example. Um, in a case like Somalia, uh, where I worked, um, you have, I had, there was a complete absence, you don't often have this, but there was a complete absence of governance structures. There was the opportunity to build something new, there's also the opportunity to fail. Arguably, we're kind of along the, the latter end of the spectrum right now in terms of how things are going for the people of Somalia. But who do you involve in that decision-making process? How do you involve them? And how do you interrelate uh, citizens um, in the country, diaspora communities, and global governance structures in that process was the, the question of the day. And this is going back about 10 years when I was working on the Somali constitution. And there was a means of involving from the really, really grassroots, clan by clan, tribe by tribe, folks to get together and sit and talk about their governance solutions to having an SMS system across the country to having diasporas, um, diaspora communities um, across the world be involved in decision-making about what that constitution should include to also working with other, um, with 
civil society partners, with experts in intergovernmental organizations, um, you know, obviously UN uh, rapporteurs, et cetera. And it happened, the, the constitution was extrapolated. And um, I think that, uh, I think something like 70, over 70% um, citizen engagement in the process from what we were able to see. If that's possible in what was called the world's most failed state, it's possible globally. Um, so these are lessons that I took away from my democratic development career and, and try to infer upon what a global governance system might look like. Wow, that's uh, so fascinating. I'd love to hear more about that work and uh, uh, that you did in Somalia, really pretty cutting edge thing. And and, and uh, I know Iceland did a similar thing where they tried to have a, a wiki-based uh, governance system evolved. And there've been other experiments in doing doing this kind of uh, interactive citizen involvement and in creating the constitution of a of a of a country, and that's very very. But the Icelandic uh, situation is a little bit different because there, and and this is why it's it's for for a wonk like me, it's fun to get into the details and the technicalities. So for Iceland, it was a, a citizen assembly that got together that was directly deliberating on the details of their constitutional reform process after a pretty critical, uh, a major crisis, a financial crisis, political crisis, etc. And so it, it wasn't sort, it was close to sortition. Um, it wasn't quite sortition, but it was something like, you know, a random assortment of citizens come together or they, and uh, deliberate over things. And the model that I just described is something a little bit dissimilar where you have some drafts and you engage in dialogue with communities, with individuals, with constituencies around the world, and you come up with a solution and you see if it flies, and then you see if it right. works. Um, and there's a lot of things in between. Uh, and I don't, it's not, I, I do not see it as CGS's imprimatur to dictate which of those pathways is the pathway to global governance, but to put them on the table and say, hey, you know, these things work. There, you know, there, there is proof, and we can not only have the huge ideas and the idealism and the vision. Uh, and I love being called a visionary, but also part of my job, I feel, is going back and then building the thing. <laughs> and as, as as a lawyer or, you know, as um, a policymaker, people need to actually then implement the structures that we dream about. And it there is room for all that possibility. And I've seen it happen in my lifetime. So Wow. Well, that's beautiful. I, I want to ask one more question before we uh, turn it over to uh, the audience now to, to, to put their questions in. But I understand you're off to Geneva next week. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be engaged in there. CGS is in um, consultative status with the United Nations. What this means is that there are couple thousand NGOs that have the ability to observe and participate as, um, as observers um, in UN events. And actually Geneva, is, I think, is the only uh, permanent presence that I haven't participated in events at. Um, next week, um, we will be working with our friends at the World Federalist Movement Institute for Global Policy on a couple of initiatives, one of which is Law Not War. So this is legal alternatives to war. 
Um, what this is, is an initiative aimed at encouraging universal jurisdiction and efficacy of the International Court of Justice. The International Court of Justice being the preeminent body envisioned by the UN Charter um, as its judicial organ, which heretofore only has compulsory jurisdiction over controversies um, between states uh, over 73 nations. So it has jurisdiction on, on a lot of matters, um, including you know, treaty disputes and uh, a variety of other things. But when it comes to state v. state, it's a matter of a nation state accepting by depositing um, a, a formal document to the United Nations uh, that they will look at the International Court of Justice as the um, authoritative body to moderate and um, adjudicate that dispute. That's one of the things that we'll be working on. There's also conversations about new areas of international humanitarian law, including space law, um, and which I will not profess any knowledge or expertise on, um, as well as furthering some of the conversations that our organizations have around mobilizing Earth Governance Alliance, which is a initiative an initiative that uh, seeks to have real solutions, practical, as, as I say, grounding the, the, the grand visions in some practical realities and some concrete suggestions for what climate, environmental justice, and governance looks like. Uh, so we will be meeting with, I think, well, some bilateral meetings and, and some events at the UN. Wow, it's very exciting to have you heading Citizens for Global Solutions. And with that, let's turn it over to some questions. Yes, thank you, Arthur. And Rebecca, this is so informative. We're, this is so interesting. It's so hopeful. And it's very exciting. I love the example of Somalia. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yes, we have questions. And for our very first question, I'd like to go to Gail. Gail, go right ahead. You've said quite a lot. I know you're very interested in democracy, and um, you've said a number of things about it, um, and uh, including something about uh, Democratic World Federation, what that would mean. And I, I didn't quite catch that, but I'm very interested in what, um, in my um, view, I'm interested in a World Federation, but not if it's not democratic. By truly democratic, I mean global, inclusive of the global south, of U.S. adversaries, as well as the uh, U.S. allies and NATO and so, and so on. And um, I became aware of a um, the Copenhagen Democrat <clears throat> Democracy Summit um, through you. And I realized that, you know, this is organized by NATO and they're claiming it's a democracy summit. And that made me realize that my concept of democracy is not, I mean, I just assumed that that would be the concept that we are striving for regarding a democratic world federation. But I realized that, hey, there are other concepts there. And so this summit did not include Global South people. It did not include um, Russia or you know other adversaries. So, and then I'm wondering about Somalia, um, I assume that was with your role with the National Democratic Institute, which is a U.S. State Department um, funded. No, it's not. 
Uh, it's it's funded by the U.S. State Department, among many other funders, but sorry. So, I mean, the U.S. also has, of itself, it's done a lot of things. A lot of things are done under the banner of democracy that I wouldn't consider to be really fostering the democracy, the, the concept of democracy that I have. So I'm wondering if you could say a little more about that in relation to what we're striving for in CGS. Um, sure, I'll I'll tackle that maybe in, let's see, <laughs> five parts. <laughs> um, so firstly, yes, I attended the Copenhagen Democracy Summit um, in um, April, June, April, May, I think. Um, yes, uh, it was organized by the former NATO Secretary General. Yes, uh, there was a panel between one Secretary General, the current Secretary General of NATO, and the organizer, Anders Fogh Rasmussen. Um, no, I don't think it's a. it was a NATO sponsored or NATO-centric event. I think the actual idea was to give that tent and to give that platform to a variety of um, experiences of democracy. I think there were approximately 90-ish, 80-90 countries present. So I don't think it's also appropriate to call it a Global North Summit. I also am shying away from using Global North, Global South terminology at this point. But suffice it to say, I think it was um, quite diverse in terms of the, the panels and the representation and participation therein. Because of the timing of this summit, um, it focused primarily on issues around Ukraine, um, around Hong Kong, um, and uh, democratic backsliding in uh, several sub-Saharan African nations. Um, yeah, and and with Ukraine also kind of the spillover effects and democratic backsliding that we, we see elsewhere um, in uh, the, I guess, COE, the Council of Europe community these days. So uh, lots of representation and lots of talk from the caucuses. I don't know if that would be conceived as Global North or not. Um, and uh, certainly very heated discussions around judicial issues in Poland, for example. So that's kind of like point one about the Copenhagen summit itself. Um, point two is, um, I think I can keep this to three points. Uh, point two is about democracy development. So democracy development, I don't use the term democracy promotion at all. Um, there is a bugaboo uh, that is persistent for those of us who have made this our vocation or avocation. Um, that it is superimposing one ideal of what a democracy looks like. And hey, I'm American. And hey, one of my funders is American. And so that's what's going to happen everywhere we work. I don't need, I will, I cannot <laughs> and will not go into details about some of the debates that I've gotten into with, um, with post, with, you know, the, uh, the U.S. Embassy in different places, um, or uh, pushback um, when we have USAID or State Department funding. Um, CGS does not have either USAID or State Department funding. We're talking about my previous roles. Um, 
And it was also important that we be able to build a patchwork quilt of funders so that you have folks uh, from philanthropies who might have very divergent views about what a democracy looks like, that you might have State Department and you might have an EU funder or a different state funder. And then what's most important is working with folks on the ground to realize what that capitulation of democracy looks like. But it does entail basic values that are enshrined in the, the UN Charter, uh, in the ICCPR, the, the, uh, and several other human rights treaties, um, and are also, I would say, at this point, customary international law. I cannot back down from the fact that democracy is a fundamental human right. What that right looks like varies extremely from place to place, from citizen to citizen, from um, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it is a human right. And so I believe in being in the room where it happens when those conversations take place. Same way, by the way, that, um, you know, I don't always love the fact that I go and hang out at the UN and I'm in some, some meetings with some unsavory characters with some uh, you know, interesting ideas about how to treat their citizens, but you've got to be a part of the conversation. I don't see the Copenhagen Democracy Summit as at that level, that it was unsavory characters and a bad room to be in. I actually saw it as incredibly positive experience, but the, the I think the, the concept needs to apply um, going forward if CGS is going to continue to have the impact that it wants to. And I would also, by the way, say the same thing about being on the Hill. Wow, great question, Gail. My goodness. Um, quickly, we'll go to Jerry. Jerry, go, go right ahead. Thanks, Melanie. Uh, Rebecca, I have a question for you about messaging. Um, as a longtime member of the World Federalist Movement, I'm kind of frustrated with the fact that our idea, the idea of going from uh, you know, a system of uh, war to a system of law, it's not out there. We, we don't have uh, we're not really part of the political debate, the mainstream political debate. It's mostly intellectuals, uh, activists that hold these ideas. And, you know, myself, I've written a book. Uh, Arthur has done a movie. You know, we've, we've worked on these things, trying to get this message out to change the story that people have. And I wanted to get your take on messaging, maybe ideas as far as how can we get our message out to get a better response. Thank you. Well, for, for full clarity, um, Jerry is on our development committee, so we get to talk about this a little bit uh, behind closed doors, but um, it, I think, is very important that we both have a presence here in D.C. and a presence at the U.N. We have a new president coming in who um, took office on August 1st. Uh, who is a longtime U.N. representative for several different organizations. Um, we also need to continue building the people-powered, bottom-up side of things. So one, is, by the way, once again, four months in, executive director, one of my priorities in the next several months is going and interacting with our chapters, giving them the resources they need, engaging in those dialectics, and um, also, you know, individuals who want to be a part of CGS or the world and the World Federalist Movement, I should say. Engaging in these international um, convocations is important as well. 
it's important to move the narrative forward. It's important policy-wise, but that always for me needs to be tethered back to what is our individual member going to see? What is our individual member gonna contribute to? And how does that then affect policy making at a national level? How do we get our representatives? How do we write our MOCs, our members of Congress uh, to take action on an issue? So um, I, can, I can run down the, I don't think I have enough time, <laughs> the um, advocacy issues that we're prioritizing for the next legislative session that we want people to take action on. Um, I can also run down what we're doing at the UN. I, I think I did that a little bit already. Um, and it's about the, yeah, again, the connectivity between the individual and these fairly abstract concepts or um, seemingly elite. Thank you. Yes. Now to Jane. Jane, go right ahead. Thank you. Uh, a couple of questions. One short term, one long term. Short term, um, we all support democracy. We all believe it's a good thing. But I'm, we're really seeing the concept of democracy being weaponized and being used to divide the world into us and them. How can we promote democracy while avoiding this weaponization of the concept that actually increases global division? That's number one. And number two, I've been thinking more and more about it. more? <laughs> um, to post, you know, the, the many different paths to world tradition, including the variety of gradualist ones. I've especially been thinking about that um, since Ted and I had a lot of success with the Oppenheimer piece, where he yep. um, posted that for everybody to see, where he was really thinking about controlling nuclear weapons and having that evolve into institutions controlling war to real world government. Um, so how do we distinguish which of those ideas are the most promising? I know, easy question, right? Right. Um, I'm not sure I fully understood the second question, but let me just answer the first um, as, as I can. Um, what we do within World Federation and what we do at CGS is imagine democracy beyond the nation state. I have been a part of failed and successful um, organizations and networks of like-minded democracies, which are at the state level or sometimes at the executive, sometimes at the legislative. I won't tell you which one succeeds, which ones doesn't. But democracy is not something that should be or needs to be relegated to the nation state, the Westphalian nation state. There are Democrats that, so this is maybe going back to Gail's question as well. Um, there are, going back to democracy as a human rights, there are Democrats in non-democracies who need help, who need championship, who need a system of accountability and governance that transcends a uh, state that does not serve their interest and often, and, or in some cases, I should say, countermands their interests in some, place, in some places oppresses their interests, right? So looking at democracy not, uh, or I guess uh, coming together of democracies or democratic thinking, not as a nation state based construct, but as a 
confluence of some state actors, maybe, some private sector actors, maybe, civil society always, individuals always, I think is, is where you arrive at the solution of what democracy looks like in a way that um, is not just superimposing the, the, the same um, great power structure that we currently have. I'm not sure, I, so first of all, huge kudos. I want everybody to look at the chat for the Oppenheimer article that Jane and Tad Daly authored. Um, I'm not sure I understood the question, if you if you could recapitulate the second question, I'm so sorry. Do you have any thoughts about how to distinguish the most promising proposals for getting from here to there, especially the gradualist proposals, which there are so many of? Yeah, so <laughs> big question, right? So it's a matter of how values, um, opportunity, and um, I, I guess I would say, uh, well, opportunity comes in several respects, but um, uptake, values, opportunity, and uptake um, coincide. So I can tell you about a couple things that we're working on uh, that I think th that there's that perfect match that, you know, there's the sweet spot that you hit, <laughs> um, but it's art, it's science, it's all the above. Yes, it seems, it might seem superficial that a big movie comes out and then you have a prevailing narrative about an issue that should have been in the public consciousness for quite a while and faded, but you seize that moment. So Oppenheimer, yes, we were always concerned about nuclear disarmament, but now, we, we have that, we have a couple of other um, milestones and lodestones to point to. Um, ICJ reform, uh, security count, or ICJ, excuse me, um, universality and effectiveness, security council reform. Um, all of these are things where I can really point to um, outward external milestones. And I can also see appetite building and I can try to, my job I think is to marry the two and, you know, to try to be that nexus and to be that force. Also at the domestic level, um, I am here in DC. That's not by coincidence and do follow, obviously not just follow, participate in uh, narratives legislatively here. So for example, uh, crimes against humanity legislation is a notable lacuna, a notable absence in our domestic framework. Um, there is a bill on the table that we will, I think, um, I can't say endorse, I would say that we will do our best to promote. Hmm. Um, likewise for legislation around nuclear disarmament, no first use case, likewise around legislation um, at varying levels of cooperation or my hope would be a session to the International Criminal Court. Um, so yeah, there's a bevy of options um, and I haven't even touched on climate, uh, which is an environmental governance, which is an omission of mine. Um, and as you see, my, my day is full with a lot of different opportunities, but that's basically the framework that I apply. Where's the opportunity? Um, where does this align to, to the values and, um, uh, you know, how, how can we mobilize this? 
Wonderful. Well, I know we know you're Thank extremely you. busy, Rebecca. And um, do you have time for more questions or you just have to fly? I can stay. Oh, great. Okay. Now we'll go to Alan. Alan, go right ahead. Thank you very much, Melanie and Arthur. And I just want to start off by saying how much I've enjoyed this conversation. I mean, having Rebecca talking about, I'd say, world federalism and practice is a, a wonderful development taking forward the ideal to what Gary Davis was talking about, about world citizenship, you know, one planet. But here we have someone who's at the policy level, you know, really, we'd say, I come from a teacher background, education, we'd say at the chalk face, you know, it's actually, how is this playing out with some of the current policies and dynamics and how to take these ideas forward now um, so that we can move forward to a much better world. So I've, I've found this really intriguing. Um, I really appreciate it. I think Rebecca mentioned this twice, um, maybe to emphasize that world federalism is not about the destruction of the nation state, uh, but about ensuring that there is global governance and, and better implementation and uh, application of international law to ensure better cooperation of the nation states for the common good. To me, that's a really important way of thinking about world federalism because often when you start talking about this to people, they think, oh, world government, it's you know one big power above us, it's imposing down on us. Whereas in actual fact, the really concrete things that Rebecca's been talking about, we say, no, it's about building democracy, better democracy, which means ensure that citizens, us as citizens have a say, not just in our own national policies, but at the global level. To me, this is really exciting. It's a really empowering idea. So I want to thank Rebecca very much. Um, I know that democracy is a, is a tricky word. And in one sense, it's an empowering thing to think that, that world federalism is a way of bringing democracy into the global arena. And, and helping people feel more engaged and, and, and are more engaged in the global arena. But of course, it's got tricky aspects as, as people have been talking about because of all oh, these different models of democracy. And as one form or one government trying to impose them on something else. So one quest, the question I have, and sorry, it was a bit of an introduction to Rebecca, is you talked about democracy as a right, but in the UN system, I think that the rights that we might associate with democracy are really brought forward a lot stronger in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and in the UN Charter as civil and political rights, not specifically as democracy rights. And I'm just wondering if maybe there's an elevation of that, the connection between what you know, democracy is meaning the implementation of the rights that everybody has agreed to in the International Covenant and Civil and Political Rights and the UN Charter, it might sort of um, help get beyond, you know, the, the dichotomies of which democracy is best and our democracy is actually a tool of imperialist governments to go, no, we're, we're enforcing the, the human rights, the civil and political rights, um, and also the rights to peace, of course, which is the UN Charter. Thank you, um, Alan, for, for all that and for uh, definitely doubling down on um, what World Federation is and is not when it comes to democracy. So there is this patchwork quilt issue when it comes to democracy in international law, um, when it comes to international treaty law, when it comes to practice. And that's where it becomes tricky. We normally point to the, the charter and we normally point to the ICCPR, as, as Alan mentioned. What is missing um, is a account an accountability system ingrained or enshrined within our global governance structures. There are many different civil society um, and, and very credible civil society initiatives that uh, 
give various barometers for democratic backsliding um, for when a society is getting in trouble. Um, as, as one indicator, uh, last year, 2023, 2022, I think, uh, 2022 or early 2023, uh, the United States slid um, for the first time on the international idea, the international democracy uh, and electoral assistance barometer um, from a green to a yellow slash orange, if I'm gonna put it coarsely. Um, these rubrics exist, but they do not exist in an accountable way and they do not exist with any global governance um, uh, structure to, to hold anybody accountable for um, if, a, if a democracy fails in its duties. Um, and when I say duties, I writ this very large, I writ this very broadly, you know, not encroaching on people's right to congregate, not encroaching on freedom of expression, not encroaching on electoral processes. One idea that is on the table that CGS and WFM have both endorsed is a special rapporteur for democracy within the UN systems. Um, special rapporteurs are one of the special bodies that include treaty bodies, uh, so working groups uh, and individuals who to a greater or lesser extent, depending on their individual capabilities and willingness, uh, look after the responsibilities of states toward the various treaty obligations. So here we're looking at a few treaties. We're not just looking at one. Sometimes it's a little bit cleaner. Sometimes it's, you know, there's one treaty on um, apartheid and there's an a rapporteur who looks at that. I worked at a working uh, group on enforced and involuntary disappearances. That's clearly linked to one, um, uh, well, um, an, am an amendment to a treaty. Um, here you're looking at enlisting a special rapporteur to check up on states on their uh, on their accountability and what that looks like i know is scary maybe because we think about democracy sometimes as as uh, alan suggested as a uh, northern or western construct um having worked in democratic development i can tell you it's not and that there is enough civil society data there is enough there are enough people on the ground who could come together and really participate in a rapporteur project to make that worthwhile. Um, so uh, thank you again, Alan, for the question, and I hope that answers it somewhat. Thank you. Yes, uh, Joanne, sneaking in. Joanne, go ahead. I do admire your your marvelous knowledge and involvement. I have a special interest in the in uh, disarmament and especially the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Do you work with ICANN um, and or what kinds of work uh, efforts have you made with regard to nuclear weapons and their elimination? Alan would be best place to to answer that. Um, CGS is in a active contributor to the Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament Group, um, as well as a number of other initiatives, Basel Peace Office, et cetera, that, uh, that Alan um, spearheads. Last, or two weeks ago, I guess, we were represented with one of our program officers 
at the NPT prep, uh, the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty Preparatory Conference by one of our program officers, uh, CGS program officer. Um, and I currently serve as senior advisor to PNND, and that will be a part of the meetings in Geneva next week. It's very near and dear to our hearts. Also, as Jane mentioned, um, you know, we are doing our best to use this, what I hope is not just a flashpoint, but a tipping point um, of momentum around a pop culture moment, as well as, unfortunately, a less happy milestone with the anniversaries of Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, to uh, propel the nuclear uh, narrative into citizens' uh, mindsets. At the same time, and I see Alan has his hand raised, and I'll go to him in a second, um, we are also engaging with us on the Hill and legislatively, uh, we have a delegation that maybe I'll leave it to Alan to describe, um, but that we are hosting at Citizens for Global Solutions coming from uh, Japan, the Republic of Korea, of parliamentarians meeting with legislators here and bringing in civil society actors here uh, to the goal of at least a no first use policy and um, ultimately, you know, nuclear uh, disarmament. Alan. Thanks, Rebecca. Joanne asked about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, which is an initiative of non nuclear states. Uh, to completely prohi prohibit nuclear weapons from countries that join. What we've seen is only non-nuclear states have joined that. And so the nuclear armed states and the allied states have not joined the treaty, so they're not bound by it. So the question is, how do we engage in those countries? Because if we want to prevent nuclear war and we want to get to a nuclear weapons free world, we have to get those with the nuclear weapons to stand down, to stop threatening each other with the nuclear weapons um, and to move towards security without nuclear weapons. So it's a slightly different engagement process than the, than the TPNW, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was basically geared to the non-nuclear states to join. So Rebecca already mentioned one of those processes, which is called no first use. That's like standing down from being prepared to be the first to use nuclear weapons. And we, we took um, some initiatives on that, a declaration on no first use to the non-proliferation treaty preparatory committee meeting uh, in Vienna. It was two weeks. And this is the, the, the that treaty. Most countries of the world are parties to it, nuclear armed states and the non-nuclear states. And there's a lot of traction. There was a lot of discussion about this would be a good, at least stand down measure to, to commit not to never start a nuclear war. That's a no first use policy. And there are initiatives in the US Congress on this, for example, uh, to, to push. And President Biden himself is actually supportive of this, um, but he's getting resistance from the defense sector um, in the United States. So, uh, so that's one part. Moving towards the elimination of nuclear weapons, if we want to convince the nuclear armed states and the allies, those who rely on them, then it's not enough just to say nuclear weapons are bad and they're destructive because from their perspective, it's the destructive power of nuclear weapons that provides the deterrent value. That's what they see. So you have to say, look, there are better ways of having your security than relying on nuclear weapons. Here, let us talk to you about those better ways. So we presented a statement on that called common security versus nuclear deterrence, saying the better ways are using the International Court of Justice, using the mediation service of the UN, you know, applying international law, using better diplomacy, you know, working to resolve some of your conflicts, you know, that are giving rise to these tensions that they are 
falling back on the threat or use of force and nuclear weapons. So the common security based on the UN Charter, better use of the common security mechanisms to provide security without relying on the threat or use of force or on nuclear weapons. So that's the program. Um, and and um, Rebecca mentioned a bit of that al already, and it's getting some resonance. It's we can go in and actually talk with some of these nuclear armed states, you know, with their ambassadors, with their State Department officials, even with their defense officials, because we're not saying you're wrong about having security issues. You know, there is aggression out there. We've seen countries attacking each other. There are territorial disputes. We know there are key issues, um, but we don't believe that threatening to blow each other up or blow up the world, you know, or also just trying to resolve those conflicts in military ways is the best solution. It's not sustainable. Why don't you use the common security mechanisms? So this all paves the way also for better world federalism to use the common security mechanisms in international law. And this Alan, is an exemplar um, or metonym maybe for how CGS and uh, WFM work together. Um, I take my role as looking at what can be accomplished in um, my domestic sphere, you know, at, at home, um, and taking these narratives of uh, what, you know, non-nuclear states, how to approach them, uh, states that might be considering nuclear, um, all as fodder for how we approach the solutions at home. Um, one thing I would also add to this is that in addition to um, supporting the, I want to make sure that I, I mentioned that CGS does endorse and supports the common security being nuclear deterrence um, statement, which I hope somebody will put in the chat because I'm not monitoring the chat. I'm sorry, too many things at once. Um, that, you know, we also hope to give a platform to this at home. Um, it was very disturbing to me that a recent report by the Stimson Center, a recent study, said that at the same time that approximately 60 some percent of Americans want to learn more about nuclear policy, um, a five to one ratio believes that our armaments keep us safer. This is a moment to hopefully uh, inflect some change in that narrative, um, because I think anybody on this table probably understands why that is objectively not true um, and subjectively um, counterintuitive to any values that our organizations have. Yeah, it's a very teachable moment, and I love that you're working together on this and locally and globally, you know, together. Um, just put in the chat, uh, as a world citizen, you have power to endorse and honor the TPNW. So please do go there and divest, take your money out of uh, nuclear weapons. There's only 24 companies making special nuclear weapon parts. So quickly, now I had to put my thing. Okay, so Marjolaine, go right ahead. Okay, thank you. Uh, Rebecca, first of all, thank you for your excellent presentation about how we can get to this democratic uh, global governance through a democratic world federation that we all are aiming for. Um, and we have been talking about uh, the state system and how we can democratize uh, the states. Uh, and you have mentioned shortly also the private sector. And I wonder how can we as world citizens also play a role in privatizing the private sector? 
I think most of us here know that in 2019, the World Economic Forum, which is an NGO, not a state system, um, which is not democratic in my view, they had uh, have signed together with Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General, uh, a memorandum of par uh, partnership, of understanding of partnership. So they get an increased influence uh, in our United Nations of we the peoples. And I was thinking, what are ways to, to balance this influence of power on our aim for a democratic process within the United Nations? Don't feel cognizant enough on the WEF um, agreement to, to speak to that specifically, but I will answer the question. I come from a jurisdiction and many on the call are from the United States where corporations are treated as individuals in a way that is almost sui generis. I, mean, I think probably is sui generis. Um, it's probably the most individual responsibility, excuse me, individual rights that are ascribed to corporations without the responsibility that normally coincides with that, that I as an individual or you would have if we violate laws. Um, this is a an immense problem within the United States system and is becoming an immense problem in the global system of justice. We've seen some courts, so I'm going to answer this a little bit more lawyerly, and I apologize if it's not speaking directly to, to the, the, um, the WEF question, but I hope, think it's answering the theme. Um, we've seen in some courts, particularly the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, holding corporations to account um, for their wrongdoing in the way that is uh, ascribed to states, in the way that is ascribed to individuals. But more frequently, corporations or private sector fall through the loopholes. Of course, corporations and private sector are immensely helpful when it comes to funding organizations like mine, when it comes to partnerships to make things happen, um, when it comes to technological solutions. But there is this huge gap um, with regards to, to, to corporate and part, private sector liability in most jurisdictions. Um, there's also a huge issue that I think is related with regards to uh, international corruption issues. And uh, we are going to be hosting a side event at CGS um, uh, in December around the Conference of States Parties to the Anti-Corruption Treaties around what an international anti-corruption court would look like. None of this gets to all of these very murky interwoven issues of corporate liability, of um, corporate responsibility. Um, we, we do love when philanthropies and private sector, uh, you know, chooses to endorse us, but I will also say that uh, candidly, I got out of meeting with our director of development yesterday and said, "Okay, what's our criteria from who we will accept a check from?" And uh, you know, let's let's look at that closely. Mm -hmm. And there is not one rubric for that. Um, I think what we need to acknowledge, though, are these are players at the table 
And so when we talk about state responsibility, when we talk about individual responsibility, when we talk about civil society participation in things, you cannot ignore the elephant in the room of private sector. So you have to decide, you know, the ways in which you engage. And there's no one size fits all solution to that. And I don't have a perfect answer, but those are some of the questions with which I'm grappling that I've been candid about with you today. Thank you for that. Um, last question, Michael, go right ahead. I wanted to talk about uh, this uh, concept of uh, militarism in the world. And ironically, I'm under the flight path of all the F-16s or what have you out of Miramar Naval Air Station out here in San Diego. Anyway, so more than a question, kind of a proposal I've had in my mind, I'm looking specifically at Switzerland and Costa Rica. Costa Rica being such an amazing country that perhaps we should talk about more. No military, 99% of its energy is renewable. So the idea is this, so here's a role model country. We start with Costa Rica and Switzerland also as a seat of the United Nations and start a global peace pact tied to the sustainable development goals with the funding mechanism, perhaps through the World Bank International Monetary Fund to really fund the SDGs on a country by country basis. So with Costa Rica as the role model, you start a, a emergency 10 year peace pact, whatever it might take and country by country, you sign them up and the countries that undertake aggressive sustainable development goals could use their militaries and repurpose their militaries, train them as engineers to start installing renewable energy, to start helping create you know, healthy food systems and so on, and really get a funding mechanism going to put people to work doing the right things and repurpose the military mission without having to disband the militaries that exist. So your thoughts on that? Great tradition. Um, I, in my past life, worked closely with um, some parliamentarians from Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is also host of the preeminent human rights conference in the world. Um, I will try to include a link in the chat. Sorry, the multitasking is, is failing me a little bit right now. Um, I uh, believe that Costa Rica is also involved in some of the WFM engagements that we've, we've discussed to date, um, but certainly the only nation in the world without a standing army. Um, and that is true um, because the other nations without a standing army are protected by other nations with standing armies is a very good example. Um, and also in terms of all things, environmental governance, many other ways, Costa Rica is um, a model. Also being the host of one of the sites of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, and really being a stronghold uh, kind of throughout the, the, the region of, of Latin and Central America, um, a bastion of, of democracy and human rights at a difficult time. Wow, my goodness. Wow, Rebecca, you did it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your knowledge. Thank you for actually taking this position. I mean, you're a perfect person for it. And we're so grateful that you are, you're involved and um, in, in and I don't know, in a fourth gear, I think you're just, ah, just doing a great job and appreciate uh, this conversation. I, I am so, we are so honored to have you with us and hope to see you back again here. That would be great. All right. So let me go back to Arthur. Arthur, go ahead. Take it away. Thank you so much, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm so, so impressed with how you're able to, uh, to hold such a diversity of, of, of opinions on how we do well, the key issue is 
how, how do we create a system of governance above the nations that divide us? But within that umbrella, you seem to embrace the very multiple different facets and ways of doing it in extraordinary ways. So I'm very excited about uh, continuing to to work with you, maybe having you on the podcast again sometime, and also uh, uh, evolving further uh, the incredible work you're doing. So thank you very much. Uh, I hope everyone will join us next week. Maybe if you can too, Rebecca, it'd be fabulous to talk about some specific actions we can do. And maybe there are either you or someone from CGS can uh, lead us in some of the actions you'd like us to take to follow up on the incredible work you are doing there and the ways we can tie into it. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, everyone for joining us here on the People-Powered Planet. I hope, Rebecca, you can stay on a, a couple of minutes afterwards to, to set up some follow-up. Uh, all of you have been wonderful, great questions, uh, and we are so pleased to have this exciting uh, discussion and look forward to having everyone here each week and every week. Bring more of your friends, and let's join together in evolving the People-Powered Planet. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.